welcome alma to the podcast thank you How thank you, you so much for having me i'm excited about this i'm excited <laughs> um we met almost not almost a year ago at samantha weekend so, yeah and we kind of didn't get into much of a conversation but at, you're a fucking rock star oh <laughs> you so you're an author tell me what you do for work as well yeah so i do a couple of things for work i um I'm one of those people that sometimes coped with trauma by over educating myself and just being in school all the time because because <laughs> education became kind of like a safe haven for me. Mm -hmm. So like I remember like when I was having like a crazy tumultuous like childhood school and teachers were always like who came through for me. And so I just got really like into education. And so because of that, I ended up just like I have like two master's degrees and a Ph.D. They're all in education. Um, I am really passionate about, I'm a first generation Mexicana, born here in the States. My parents were both immigrants. And so I got really, really like um, encouraged to pursue like higher education, which was a new thing for my for my family because no one graduated from high school before me. Yes. So that's, I'm a first generation American as well. My Both of my parents were born and raised in Dominican Republic. Okay. And me and my brother were like the first kids, you know, that they yeah. had here in the States. And they pushed education so much on me but it made me not want to yeah i get that yeah i feel like that's my kids right now yeah. <laughs> because i was so like pro-education yeah what's crazy is my parents were like get good grades but to them they were just like oh my gosh you're gonna graduate from high school that's amazing For like sure. that was like their epitome of making it in terms of education because they had never even gone through like middle school like, because in, in Mexico, you have to pay for that. And so if you're poor, basically, you don't get an education, which just really sucks. But um, because of that, they were just like, yeah, just go to, you know, just just finish high school. That yeah. was like the goal. And yeah. so I was like, OK, cool. Like, I accomplished it. Now what? <laughs> you know, I kind of had to develop like my own. I think the lack of them pressuring me for more is what made me be like wait there's more guys like yeah, have you heard of college <laughs> you know like have you heard of a bachelor's degree yeah so i had to like i i felt like i was learning it and t telling them about it and they were like well i don't know what that is but go that for it mija you know like just super like trying to be supportive or whatever and then yeah. for a time they gave up about it because they were like can you just get a job now like you've been <laughs> educated you've been, getting, you've been getting these degrees forever like just get a job like do something with your life i'm like i'm yeah. sorry i have a master's that's not good enough for you got it <laughs> yeah it was crazy it was a crazy experience because they don't know you know mm -hmm. like i'm sure your parents also you know like you mentioned being like first generation here even though they were into education yeah like, i don't know if they knew what it meant to have that here, you know, in the States. Yeah. My, so. yeah, I don't even think my dad graduated from high school in the Dominican Republic. And I think my mom finished school here for like a diploma. Wow. But they, you know, they're like, girl, just finish high school. And it's a miracle, especially being in my addiction in high school. Mm -hmm. It's a miracle I graduated. That's pretty awesome, actually. Um, yeah. No, I was so close to not. And I <laughs> made it. And yeah. they, they really, they did push college. They were like, yeah. oh, I mean, you should, but... We're really happy you finished high school. Yeah. Um, and I kind of didn't want to. I just really was not interested. I didn't. I also didn't have like a direction or an idea of where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be that person that kept switching majors. Yeah. And then you end up being in school tense like so much longer. Yeah. Um, and I've like I've been really against education, honestly, in a way of like continuing education because I see it as like a scam. Mm hmm. 
and almost like power to the man. Like, I don't want to give into it. I don't want to be in student loan debt. Yeah. And all those things. I definitely feel like that now, too. Even yeah. though I have all these degrees. I One of the things that I realized through my getting my PhD program was that in a lot of ways, um, we were replicating the problems that we have in education because at that level, it's very political and it's like a lot of white old men teaching me about life or like these studies. And whenever I would say like, hey, I want to focus on Latinos and like their educational attainment, which just means like, you know, how do they get into college? How do they become access those institutions, basically? And they were just like, well, let's just focus on everyone. You know, like they were just very like colorblind ideology about it which is like i don't know if you've heard of this term but it's basically like this erroneous belief that you're being more just by saying let's just focus on everyone instead of like wanting to focus on a particular population why do you want to focus on a particular population? because to me that's who i cared about and i was like we see the numbers that it's like um like in higher ed the folks when you see the the you know the percentages of people who complete education it's wealthy white people Mm. That's who gets ed educated in this country, because partly it is about, you know, who can afford it because it's so freaking expensive mm -hmm. and you're going to go into debt, you know, and partly also because it's it's kind of catered to middle class kind of uh, like values, like, you know, like going to education. Like, for example, like I have a lot of students that I've supported through the nonprofit that I work for. Like they're balancing like being caretakers sometimes for their own parents while also trying to get a college education and having to work to like help themselves get get through that. And like that's something that is very unique to like low income populations as well, because if you if they were high, edu you know, if they were middle high income, they could just pay for all of that. You know, like they wouldn't have to worry about all the other things like their parents would be in a home or have a caretaker at home, you know, like yeah, exactly. these things. And so it's um, education, unfortunately, in our country is very much like if you're rich and wealthy, you're going to get more educated than not, you know. So so to me, I saw it as an equity issue. That's why I got really into it. Sweet. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, that's a main part of why I didn't go. It's like I don't want to put any financial burden and I really don't want to be in debt so young. Yeah. And then I'm also I have this belief that I can accomplish what I need without um, a degree. Of yeah. Some sort. There's certain jobs, of course, you do need one. Like yeah. A therapist, for example. But I'm like, I have this mindset of like, I don't need it. But like more recently, yeah. I've been a, a little more open minded. Yeah. Well, the market has changed, too. I think, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things, I think, especially like during COVID or like post COVID that people have realized, like reevaluated kind of like what they want in life. And instead of being sucked into like a capitalist, like, you know, like machine that just wants to churn you out for your yeah. for your like for what you can contribute to it. Like they've thought about like, no, I want to give back in this special way to like this community or I want to work in this, even if it means I may never buy a house or even if it means blah, blah, blah. You know, like they're more value driven. I feel like, I don't know, maybe you've always been that way. Like yeah. it sounds like you've always kind of felt like, you know, I can find another way to, to make my dreams happen. Yeah. And that's totally cool too. Like one of the things that I think is a misconception is just because I really promote like this for a specific population doesn't mean that I feel like or look down on people that don't mm -hmm. because I feel like there are people who have you know one of the other things that college has been shown to do is like uh, provide a network of professionals that you can 
start to like um, network with so that you can get those kinds of jobs that you might be working towards. And some people who like, let's say, for instance, me, my mom was a seamstress. So she like sewed clothes at a sweatshop in L.A. like mm -hmm. all my life. And that's where she met my um, stepdad, who I call my father because he raised me. And he was also he also worked there. He was like someone who used to like um, iron the clothing before they set it, sent it off to like all these like bougie stores, mm -hmm. you know, to like to sell for like a lot more money than they made. Yeah. Um, and like they were able to introduce me to people in that knit network. So like I didn't want to be a seamstress. Like I didn't want to work. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and like we were like pretty poor. So like I didn't. I mean, I think the most the, the wealthiest people I knew were probably teachers like mm. at that time. Like that's who I knew as like, whoa, they have real jobs <laughs> and make a salary like yeah. whoa, and they're so freaking underpaid. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but like back then, I remember thinking like they're so rich. They're, they've made <laughs> they've it. They've made it. Yeah. You know? And I'm just like, wow, they really don't get paid well enough here. But anyway, so to me, it was like that's one of the things that I also learned through my studies that like who you know matters a lot too, you know? That's and so very, you, very true. So if you don't have a network, one way you can get one is also through college and like, or internship yeah. experiences or yeah. putting yourself out there. But that might be hard if you don't have any, you know, education sometimes, if you don't have that network to begin with. Exactly. So. And there's also, so you do like education reform kind of work? I do. A, so I guess to answer your initial question, like what I do is I have worked a lot in educational access. So, oh, access. so like teaching people like how financial aid works so that they're able, mm -hmm. like for instance, a lot of people who are from low income backgrounds, they don't know that most of college will be paid through grants, which is free money to you. Yeah. You don't have to pay the government back or anyone back. Um, like for instance, when I went to college, all my college was paid for, even when I transferred to, oh, UC wow. I started out at a community college and then I transferred to UCLA and UCLA has an agreement here in LA where if you come from certain zip codes, they know that you're heck of poor. <laughs> so they, they basically are like, let me give you money to come girl. Cause you go struggle here. <laughs> so they gave me like a full ride. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't have to pay for my BA, That's awesome. you know, and then, and then after that, I had to pay a whole lot of money for my <laughs> master's and stuff, which I still owe. So to your point, like, yeah, you do get in debt, you know, and, but it's also kind of, I'm seeing it like, yeah, it was my investment, like too, to like figure out kind of what I needed to do in this life and do the stuff that yeah. I loved, you know? Did you hear this thing where like millions of people didn't pay their student debt recently? Yeah. I mean, I was probably one of them. <laughs> I was like, I was like, first of all, y'all need to like pardon this. Like, I don't understand why this hasn't. Why, well, one, I really believe in a free college education. Like our country. I don't know if you've if you know, but like for one of the most like advanced countries or like, you know, that are considered kind of like the wealthier countries, we're one of the few that actually charge our okay. citizens for free for college education. Yeah. Other countries, this is what they invest in. They invest yes. in their folks being smart and like <laughs> learning in this specific way, right? Like I'm not saying there's not other ways that you can become smart and like learn, but like they invest in that because they see that that promotes like, you know, people getting degrees and things that the, the, the country needs in terms of like, like we have to outsource like engineers and a lot of different um, jobs from like other countries because we yeah. don't create enough here. Wow. Because people aren't going because it's so freaking expensive, you yeah. know? And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of problems in education, you know? And so I think that's why I stayed in it for so long and I'm still really like passionate about education. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So. Do you believe that what we're teaching kids from like K through 12 needs to change like anything about it? Um, yeah, I feel like I've gone through seasons where like I think very differently about what's being taught. Like right now, I also work as a diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging coordinator, wow. which is basically like a really fancy way of saying like, how can we do like less racist stuff in our school? <laughs> What's, what, <laughs> do less, what's less, happening or just like become more inclusive like yeah. to everyone and not just have a certain way that we teach things or that we promote things can you give me an example of so for that's... instance like we have a very eurocentric like history that we learn in the united states like we learn everything from the perspective of like which is i know very controversial right now because there's a lot of states even in our country that have voted against for example like teaching about uh, critical race theory, which I actually am one of the people that teaches this at a college level. Mm. So, um, so for instance, like I want people to learn their history and the ways that various minority populations who are actually not going to be minority very soon have like invested a lot of their labor and also their land to be able to provide what we have now you know like i'm thinking mm -hmm. about for example the indigenous people that took care of took care of this land before european colonizers came for instance like we learned their history by being like yeah there was like these savages here <laughs> you know and like it's so <laughs> messed up like how we learned it i mean i think we've gotten a little bit better <laughs> So like <laughs> these savages that's how we freaking teach like about like <laughs> indigenous folks who were here before and were taking care of the of the land and had this value system that was different before european colonizers came talking about where's the gold at which is all they were fucking you know like uh cared about and so like what if we actually taught people like from like a, a place of respect like about indigeneity and then yeah. also about how mexican land was like made up like a third of the united states mm -hmm. before you know yeah. and like how that created this unique culture i'm not saying like f everything that's like european but yeah. like i'm saying like can we just like teach it in a way that honors all the different people that sure. make up this country instead of this weird whitewashed like white male centric history that we learn yeah you know like do i really need to learn like the names of all the like different presidents and like their birth dates and no i don't care like <laughs> that has zero to do with me as a person yeah for sure so i feel like that could just be like one chapter of like hey these were the white people that like you know organize themselves to create this new democracy but here's what it was like before yeah. and how like people have changed it to become this other thing now to make it more inclusive you know yeah the only thing i recall from like previous before like the colonizers came was like the louisiana purchase or something mm -hmm. where we were buying the land yeah i did see i remember i can see in my head where we bought it yeah like oh that's how much that's what used to be mexico now we have it yeah you know? yeah but that was it that's all i recall yeah so in my uh graduate level course that's kind of what i teach how like at such a young age we are already taught for example this idea of buying land like why why didn't we investigate that like what do you mean we buy land a free resource from the earth like how did mm. why don't we teach it as like this is for all of us to use but we got to buy it from people and have this relationship with land where you're like it's not us for us to own like if you teach if you learn from indigenous like 
you know, um, like I recently went to a talk given by the Tongvin elder and she was talking about how like they don't have that relationship with the earth. The earth is a source of gifts that are given to us to like basically take care of and and continue to like grow for each other. Yeah. But and live together and live together. Right. And, yeah. Like, and, you know, but that's not how we teach about the earth. We're like, oh, plots of land that you buy <laughs> you know like that's another way of thinking about the world that's very like laden with value that unless you like sit back and investigate like oh yeah why are we taught that like you wouldn't realize like it's normalized yeah we've normalized that. i think it's really good in general to question things mm -hmm. just like not always be so like oh you're telling me that cool like yeah. that's true <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it's really good and something i've been trying to practice myself recently is to just question things here and there and see where where my opinions lie and how i how i view it my yeah. perspective i'm all about that yeah. like i just feel like that's true education yeah because now you're becoming awakened almost you know to like to to your to like an idea a way of thinking that is taking various viewpoints and seeing like wait what does this mean like what does this actually mean in the ways that like we understood this topic for instance mm -hmm. you know so it's like awareness, but at a societal, societal kind of level, which is awesome. Yeah. So you said you grew up in, so in your book, you kind of talk a little bit about you were born in LA and grew up in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I actually really, um, I feel like that's kind of where my, why I am the way I am now is because I got to see these like very different lives being lived in two different countries. So mm -hmm. I was born in the in LA, but I was raised in Mexico in Acapulco, which is like a very tropical and like humid kind of like paradise. It's like yeah. really beautiful there. Um, and I, you know, we lived in like dirt, we had dirt floors, like we didn't have like, even like the streets were dirt. Uh, we had like a bunch of, like I had a mango tree, an almond tree, like lemon tree. That's like, awesome. you know, it was like really beautiful. Like I yeah. remember just like, really enjoying even though there was like some crazy circumstances as to why i was raised there my mom had to basically uh send us back to mexico to be raised by my grandparents so that she could like wire us money because she was a single mom and didn't know you know like on a seamstress budget so it's like you know it was really hard for her so i we had to be there so that she could make her basically her dollar stretch you know yeah and so we were raised there um and you know, I got to see all of that and I actually went to Mexican school. So I learned um, like my first like um, national anthem was like the Mexican national anthem and all that, you know. So it's like in some ways very bicultural because then when I came yeah. here and I learned, you know, a lot about the history here, I was just like really confused. Like I remember thinking like, whoa, like the way that we talk about our like the U.S. talks about itself here is so different than how I remember learning about it in Mexico, you know? And so I'm really curious to see how you learned about it. I just feel like it's it's almost like any other country. Like, you know, every country focuses on like telling the history from their perspective. And so then you start to feel like, oh yeah, this is the right way or this is true, right? Or like the real kind of thing. And so since I since I learned it, since I learned it in Mexico first and then I came here, I was like, oh, like this is really interesting. Like like, for instance, like the like the way that Mexico is seen here is like a poor country. Like, and I remember mm -hmm. thinking, like, I never felt poor, you know. Of course, we actually were poor, because, but I didn't realize that as a child. But anyway, when I came to the U.S., I lived in L.A. in a predominantly black neighborhood. 
And I remember, and it was during like the eighties. So it was like rough season. Um, there was like a lot of drive-by shootings. Like when I was at the school that I grew up in, like we used to have to like hit the, hit the like turf all the time. Cause there was like drive-by shootings by where wow. like, um, where it was situated. And I remember thinking like, yeah, the U S is like really ugly and violent. <laughs> like I remember, like I remember thinking that, but I would learn about Mexico as being ugly and violent but I was like no this is ugly and violent like over there I was in a paradise like I was surrounded by nature no, yeah, I have this idea of Mexico <laughs> that it's so violent yeah I mean I'm get... sure certain parts are yeah. <laughs> like I don't want to like say that like it's all good you know yeah but like we're violent here too we have like school shootings all the time does Mexico have that issue no I don't think that's a thing you know I mean we also have kidnappings though like they have a lot yeah. of like these like kidnappings that happen for like ransoms and stuff with Jeez. for educators because of I don't know they are considered to have resources or something but you know I just remember like similar to like um so when I was growing up is when like the Watts rebellion or some people call it the Watts riots happened and I learned from most of my teachers were African-American and so they would I remember going home and watching like Spanish radio and syndicated television and it was always like you know like painting this this narrative about black people being dangerous and like how we have to be careful and like even my family was like very like like oh you know like be careful like we're very anti-black kind of honestly, like sentiment my, my family was that way too even yeah. though a lot of dominicans have Are black, black. <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean same in, you know since then i've learned a lot about afro-mexicanos and it's like how we I, my grandfather was actually afro-mexicano yeah and so like i realized later i was like wow we were like really like self-hating yeah. <laughs> you know like what was that about we like ourselves <laughs> I guess. yeah and so um so then I remember I remember like hearing these stories in my family and like Spanish TV and like painting people in this way. And then I would go to school and my teachers would like teach me like a different perspective, for instance, like real history about like slavery and like how people, I mean, African-American or Africans were forced into basically like labor camps. I mean, I don't know what else to call what slavery was, yeah. you know, and like learning about that. And I was like, well, no shit, they're fucking mad. <laughs> you know like <laughs> i would be rebelling too i would be freaking rioting <laughs> like what the hell and so For all sure. of a sudden like i had this his like historical context to why like this community was like going crazy after like the rodney king's like beating and then i was like oh well yeah like if you look at history and why things like why they're this might explain why they're so mad y'all like you know i just remember yeah. thinking that as a kid and again, like, I don't know how many kids have that, like, different, like, cultural experience when they're growing up where they're, like, seeing something at home, being, like, super anti-black, but then going to school with a very pro-black teacher who's, like, teaching you real history. And you're just like, wait, so who's right? Which adult is lying to me? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, what's happening here? And so it, I feel like all of those experiences, like, really made me become very critical and, like, question a lot of what is considered like history what is considered like truth because i just realized like oh yeah adults are just making this up you know like we're just kind of like based on whatever values or whatever you believe that's what you end up believing but if you investigate more of like why is this happening mm -hmm. there's a whole other history to uncover there yeah there's a few things i want to ask you um for i want to cover kind of i think i read somewhere that you talk a lot about like intergenerational trauma yes and then I also, mm -hmm. let's cover that first. Okay. 
So what do you know about that? What is that? Yeah, so intergenerational trauma is um, trauma that gets passed down, not just uh, socially, like through, you know, grandparent to parent yeah. to, to, to child, but also uh, biologically. So there's like a lot of research now, for example, that shows that specifically for women, like all of our all of our um, eggs that we carry for reproduction, like we already have when we are infants in our mother's like uterus. Mm. So basically our mother, our grandmother also carries us because the 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 fetus, so like the mo the mom already has all the eggs that are going to make the children. So like it's so weird that biologically now we we know, for example, that like a lot of the trauma even from grandparents get passed down to like Holy another shit. generation biologically. And that's not to say even like the social so it's like, like trauma. I was in, I was inside of my grandmother. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's a fun fact. Yeah, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> when I learned that, I was like, I don't understand patriarchy now. <laughs> I don't know why we went that route when there's like so right? many things that like show like like women. <laughs> Why'd we go that route? <laughs> I mean, I do know, but you know, it's like crazy. So one of the things that I talk a lot about, about in my book is that being a grandchild of alcoholics had a very um, similar kind of like, you know, it, it ended up making me very much uh, resonate with a lot of people who are like children of alcoholics and like the emotional immaturity that they inherit from their parents because basically, uh, you know, when people are are uh, alcoholics or are drugs, there is a level of immaturity with like their emotions that they're not able to like really cope with and like work through and therefore they don't pass down skills on like, for example, like how to take care of yourself, how to like feel validated or self-validate, right? Like because that's what you're using like substances for. And so being a granddaughter of alcoholics, I had, a, you know, I, I have a mom who emotionally just was like never really present. You know, she just was not she could not compute like emotions, you know? So Same. like, so whenever like I would like have big emotions or like just want to ask tough questions, it was like immediate shutdown. Like we cannot Same. talk about that. It is like not okay, which partly also explains why I have, why I want to question everything too, you know? And so um, th that's what intergenerational trauma. It's basically like you are inheriting the ways that your your you know predecessors coped with issues and if there was ever alcoholism or any kind of trauma that they experienced and never worked through you invariably end up getting that too because now they're teaching you how to cope in the ways that they've coped which hasn't been healthy exactly you know and so there's a lot of intergenerational trauma in my family because uh with my grandfather being alcoholic even though he was present in a lot of ways you know like I think he was like financially present, like he like financially took care of his children. I don't think he did a very good job of emotionally being present. And so my mom ended up kind of learning from him and my grandma of course, that yeah. like that was what parenting was, right? Like yeah. they didn't know any better yeah. either. And she never questioned it because she just thought that's what it was to be an adult because that's what she saw. Um, but then it wasn't until like I think my generation where we started to question a lot of that because... In our family, there's also been like a lot of like domestic violence or intimate violence like, that I growing up? that I witnessed. Yeah, oh. that I witnessed mostly other like um, like my tias and like, you know, other women in my family. 
um thankfully not with my mom but we did also experience a lot of physical violence like in our in my immediate like home like that was just part of like discipline for a long time with my parents yeah you know like just beating you up real good so you could learn i <laughs> hate it like, I, i've experienced what? the same thing it's like no i kind of just resent you now yeah exactly yeah, yeah and it took a long time they definitely you know once i was a teenager because i was always kind of seen as like the black sheep because i questioned everything and like really pushed back on a lot um i feel like when i became a teenager they finally started to like reevaluate their own parenting and so i'm happy to say that at least they changed in their lifetime and i got to see it which is crazy because a lot of people don't get to see that exactly you know? no so i've yeah. been having that same experience like um when i got so when i came out here and got sober my parents kind of i feel like they almost like just got so enlightened and started looking back at the past years and maybe how they reacted to certain things or how they were dealing with certain mm -hmm. things or maybe even changing their perspective on like life and god and, th yeah. and stuff i'm like wow my parents are like woke all of a sudden <laughs> and you decide to do this when i'm yeah living on which my also own makes now. you resentful because you're just like how about you being that when i was a child like how about exactly that? <laughs> i started that was my point yeah. i started getting a little angry yeah. it's like no at the end of the day i'm happy i'm happy yeah. for them and I'm, I wouldn't be the person I am today if it yeah. weren't for all those experiences. Yeah. And, you know, healing from intergenerational trauma, too. Um, it's really complicated because often in order for us to heal, we have to forgive people who haven't asked for forgiveness or who haven't necessarily felt that they've done anything wrong. We're, yeah, we're forgiving for us. Yes, we are. Yeah. You know, and that's something that I think is where it gets really challenging for people like when as i've talked about my book and like those topics and you know like in different interviews or like in front of different audiences that was that's usually one of the questions i get is like how do you change your parents or like how do you make them see and like how do you you know when does the apology come mm -hmm. blah, blah blah and i'm just like honestly you might never see that in your lifetime and they may never change but you still are responsible for yourself yes and your own like forgiving of what happened and finding a way to do that in a way that's authentic to you too you know because for a long time i was like no i totally forgive them but i didn't did really yeah. transformatively forgive them i was exactly. just kind of like going through the motions and to me it you know it had to be it had to look different than maybe like for someone else mm -hmm. it's, it's a it's an individual process i feel like 100 percent. yeah i went through that experience with my dad apologized for something specific wow. and i was like wow i was not expecting that and i That's never awesome. thought you were ever going to bring that up wow yeah that was really cool and, and random yeah yeah, yeah I, I really appreciated it though yeah That's um awesome. but there's there's like trauma that's embedded in our dna right yes like what kind what things are those so is it like reactions to things so i don't know much about the biological part in, of intergenerational trauma because that's not really my expertise but mm -hmm. i do know for instance in my family uh we struggle a lot with anxiety and depression and this is like generational like so my biological father i recently found out had been like he has been in and out of institutions for most of his adult life um and i didn't realize that he was actually bipolar and that's why he was when he was acting out his manic states he was doing really like violent aggressive stuff to people but then he just got incarcerated because you mm. know the way that our system set up like you know if you're not taking care of yourself and you're acting out like this then you're just kind of considered like you know yeah. you're just gonna have to pay the consequences for, of that and so he got 
um, he was incarcerated. And then while he was incarcerated, they noticed that he just wasn't acting like correspondingly to what was going on. Like sometimes he would just kind of, you know, go through those ups and downs like really hard. Like he wouldn't like come out of his cell. Like he was just doing a lot of like depressive stuff. And then there were times when he was just like, like acting out manic stuff too. And that's when they, when he got diagnosed and mm -hmm. like in prison. And so then he was um, transferred to like a mental health uh, facility where he had to live out the rest of his sentence. And um, I think he's to this day, I think he still kind of like struggles with taking his medication and accept, accepting that it's like a thing because he went untreated for so long too, that I think he's, you know, he's not all there anymore either. And so um, when I found this out, like a couple of years ago, all of a sudden, like I told my sister, bro, you know how we've always been depressed <laughs> and anxious like our whole lives? Like there's a reason, you know, <laughs> like our dad like totally has gone through all this stuff because me yeah. my sister and my brother, all three of us like struggle with like anxiety and depression. But my mom, because of the way that she is, she was just like, I don't know what's wrong with y'all. You know, like, <laughs> like I don't know why you swear. can't just get over it. I swear. <laughs> I swear that's my home. Yeah, I know. It's just like, all right, thanks, lady. Yeah, you know, my, like, she just doesn't get it. My mom really struggled with, like, the, the emotional comfort. She's so good. Like, if you're, like, physically sick, like, oh, if you yeah. have, like, the flu or something, or if you, like, broke something, she was so good at just, like, you know, like, I'll bandage you up. I'll make you some soup. But when it came to, like, emotional, yeah. that's where we lacked. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I think in the Latino community in general, we're, I, I mean, I think there's becoming, it's becoming more, like, prevalent to talk about these things yeah. and to, like, figure out, you know, like, what depression is, anxiety. But it, back in the day, like, if you were depressed, you were just lazy. Like, get up. Yeah. Like, do something with your life. Like, why are you just laying there? It wasn't seen as something like, oh, maybe he has some, like, emotional or like mental health <laughs> like issue going on you yeah. know and so like i remember you know growing up seeing either like my siblings or i go through like these seasons and you know we would just get called names instead like you know being lazy with on you know like that was one that we heard a lot like and also my parents didn't know how to like um i don't know if this is you know like intergenerational like biology or if it's more of like coping mechanisms but my parents didn't know how to relax like how to have self-care and my just chill too like just sit down on a couch for like more than five minutes and like just relax yeah. <laughs> you know? my dad can do it but but he smokes weed like my mom cannot yeah yeah which is you know it's interesting too like when people have to like use a substance like if how much of that is also like self-medicating it is, or like not sure. learning your own coping ways to cope and i i just also recently learned my dad has bipolar oh like really? diagnosed bipolar right and um somebody told me like if you smoke weed and are bipolar that can lead to like anger fits or yeah. something i'm like wow that adds up <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah the self-medicating thing is he's done that for a long time and my mom hates it yeah so much and that caused a lot of fights and arguments. Mm. And then I also recently learned, like, we didn't talk about shit, period. Mm -hmm. Sounds um, like a legit Latino family. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know he struggled with substance use, like oh. substance usage. Like he was addicted to opiates in the past. What? Yeah. I'm like, So you wow. recently learned this? Yeah. In my sobriety. Wow. I'm like, what is going on? Yeah. But you're also sober as well. I think you mentioned yes. before we started. Yeah. So I didn't realize that I was struggling with anxiety and depression for so long. And so I would say that I was coping with alcohol for a really long time. So I, 
you know, I, I never went through like a like a process where I hit a rock bottom or like even a soft bottom where like people that people talk about. But I've I've seen a therapist for long enough where he was like, I don't think you're an alcoholic, but if you know that alcohol is the way that you're like escaping a lot of like responsibility and that you're rather than working on like yourself that you're just like turning to this to as a way to cope then that makes sense that it's probably not good for you you know yeah uh, i also don't know that he can like make that determination because i don't know that that's his specialty or whatever yeah. but anyway it was while having you know intensive therapy for a few years to like work on my own trauma that i realized that i had uh abused alcohol for a really long time um, especially in my 20s I feel like in my 20s I all all I remember was like I would work like my memory first of all is foggy AF because of that <laughs> because yeah. I just remember like drinking come like Friday night through the weekend and then sobering up for the week just to go to work and then starting the process over yeah. for like a few years at a time so like I know that that was and because of that like I didn't really um develop a lot of like emotional coping mechanisms right like how to deal with uncomfortable feelings and just sit and like let that just simmer and not like grasp for something like i was definitely using it as a way to cope yeah and so i finally made a decision um a few years back i think this will be my fifth year to just eliminate alcohol from just my life and to really dig deep into like just my growth and Part of what allowed for me for me to even write my book was during my sobriety. Nice. So I realized like, wow, I could have really been doing like a lot more, you know, a lot, a lot more with my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> like if I was sober, like I didn't realize how much of my life I had given up to alcohol mm -hmm. until like very, you know, until I stopped. You don't realize it's holding realize... you back until you realize it's holding yeah, you it's, back. Yeah, it's really, it was really crazy. There's like no benefits to alcohol in your life. No, I mean, I do remember feeling the high <laughs> and the good. I remember feeling drunk. That was good. That was, I mean, it felt like a benefit then and there. No, for sure. <laughs> but then for later sure. you're like, wow, I'm just like a really immature adult. <laughs> like, That's social funny. emotionally. Like, That's I, funny. You know, this is, I know you mentioned Samantha earlier. This is one of the conversations that we've had, like how... Um, because I really value how smart she is, like yeah. in, in in a social emotional way. Like she has so much capacity for like stressful stuff that I would just be like folded over within like ten minutes. Because I'm like I can't, <laughs> you know. But she deals yeah. with this like high stress level stuff, and like she can show up so authentically for people. And I remember telling her one time I was because she kept saying things about how she's not smart. I was like, bro, that is smart. Like I was so like social emotionally like dumb for so long yeah. even though academically i can like theorize about really like you know big words and like just you know and and kind of like put things on paper and read like i social emotionally i did not have any skills whatsoever yeah. and so i tell you know i talked to her about that because i'm just like yeah i'm smart in some ways but like that's yeah. not all of life you know like yeah, for sure. you're definitely smart in other ways that i feel like i i feel like i can learn a lot from so yeah, I feel yeah. like I can learn a lot from her as well. I, I really do look up to her. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, so one of the, the other things I wanted to ask you about was kind of relating to what we were talking about with the, with the black community where you were growing up and kind of like what's happening now in the world. Mm. I wanted your take on Black Lives Matter mm. and like what 
first do you do you, can you like run down what it is yeah i can run it down um i'm like how far do i go back uh, <laughs> yeah like uh, i just because i was in my addiction when it all started and i just mm -hmm. remember like riots somebody got killed and then riots then black lives matter that's yeah. all i remember so let me fill you in <laughs> you're like what happened these last five years <laughs> yeah um so black lives matter i would say is an offshoot of african-american um empowerment that has always happened in our society this is very like u.s specific too just as an fyi other countries have different histories because other countries didn't have for example like forced labor camps like slash slavery which we did here mm -hmm. um and other countries um yeah, there's like very different histories, right, in every country. And the reason why race and Black Lives Matter is so important in our country is because any rights or um, movement that African-Americans have towards any type of equality or equity in, their, in the way that they are seen has come at a great cost to their community fighting for it. So like they've had to fight for the rights that they have for yeah. a very long time. And along that you know fighting like obviously uh and resistance like other populations have joined in on that movement you know because anti-blackness racist anti-black racism is very very prevalent in our in our um society and so in order to combat that there's there's um i would say like different waves and movements that have happened over time that current the current iteration of it is black lives matter but before black lives mattered uh, black lives still mattered to people. And <laughs> even though it wasn't called that, uh, you know, there were people that were fighting for the lives of black people and and that were trying to 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 fight for their own humanity. And so we have a I mean, there's like so much I can say about this, but we have a very complicated history that has created a very anti black racist country that we live in. And there's a lot of undoing that we have to do at both I think, you know, both African-Americans sometimes because there's a lot of self-hate also in the African-American community all the way to like the whitest of white richest person that needs to also come to terms with how they have benefited from the slavery and the labor that mm. uh, black people, you know, had in this country and that were not able, you know, they were unable to like benefit from their own labor in those, in, in you know, in, in the ways that even the country was created, for instance. Like the reason we have an infrastructure now and the way, the buildings that we have and all the things that first created the infrastructures and in across our country was forced labor camps by African-Americans predominantly, but also um, by indigenous people who were enslaved and other people that were enslaved that is like less known you know but that also happened and so they were not able to to benefit from their own work in this country and instead were basically you know used for for those for for advancing a society um and treating them less than human and so um that's kind of like the context in which i like to talk about black lives matter because i feel like without the context it's like what are all these black people mad about you know <laughs> like literally like i've heard like headlines of like what this doesn't make sense we're like you know racism in, is in the past and blah 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 and it's like no it's not because intergenerational wealth is also a thing and so because we systematically like did not allow uh, black individuals to earn wages or wealth 
and instead the wages and, and wealth that could have that should have gone to them went to like the, the slave owners and you know their ability to move up the ladder then we that's why we have the society that um became predominantly ran by white rich individuals and that's who's on top you know yeah. in terms of like our society so i guess all that to say that like you know that's how i understand it it's hard to understand it without the context um and i specifically like to learn a lot from black women i feel like black women um over our our history has have really taught us a lot about intersectionality for instance you know like even that term comes from a black woman um i want to say her name is kimberly i forget her last name um but you know it's it was a black woman that came up even with that term like what does international intersectionality mean um it means like the ways that being a woman and a black woman kind of is a you know intersex to like really um create a, a lived experience that is unlike other lived experiences because now you you know you also get into like the gender like issues and the ways that we you know that we are sexist in our country as well in many ways and hetero sexist in, in a lot of ways too and so you know all the different kind of like intersections um and the ways that um, I think predominantly black women because of their social positioning in a society that really underprivileges them, they're able to see those intersections a lot more clearer and they're impacted by them a lot clearer. So cool. Yeah. And then they've done a lot of spinoffs though. Black Lives Matter. Yeah. With Blue Lives Matter. And is that just yeah. honoring <laughs> so Yeah. Just... Okay. Is that just honoring like law enforcement lives? Yeah, I think something that people misunderstand about Black Lives Matter is that the reason Black Lives Matter became like a term was because it's so obvious that like in our country, if you look at history, we have been a very anti-Black racist country. And so it, it was like a way to say like, hey, Black Lives Matter, like let's like they, they are also human lives. They also have humanity, right? Um, and then people who don't understand that, that don't understand the history of that, then feel threatened because they think that we're saying every other life sucks because only black lives matter, but that's not what it's saying. And I think it, blue lives matter became a thing because it was basically like, um, during a, you know, black lives matter also became a thing when, because of the shootings and the killings that police officers we're doing against the black community. And so then the police officers who also, by the way, have a whole set of issues within the police department, which is a whole other like episode that maybe you could like bring on an expert on. Like they, I'll give you like a snippet, but I know that for sure. Like they also experience trauma on a day-to-day -day oh, conversation sure. and get zero treatment and then go back out on the streets and cause more harm. So there's, so I'm not like basically like putting police down. I'm just saying like they deal with real stuff that like, of course, it makes them jumpy. And of course, they end up making decisions that are like, why did you kill that person when they had no gun? You know, and it's because they have they're also living in a very triggered state. But anyway, that's my side note. But Blue Lives Matter came up because it was almost like we, I guess, police officers or people that support police officers thought that when Black Lives Matter came out, we were saying that their lives didn't matter. But I think all lives matter. Sure. Like that's that's true. All lives matter. But what we're what, what Black Lives Matter is trying to say is that like in the past, 
in this country, black lives have not mattered. And that's why we have to make make this a thing, like a saying, so that we can investigate the ways that like, why do this individual people feel like, group of people feel like we have to think about it in this way, as opposed to just being reactive and be like, well, yeah, black, blue lives matter too, you know? Like all lives matter. It's like, yeah. bro, that's not even the freaking argument here, you know? Mm -hmm. But anyway, I don't also want to dismiss the fact that like, like I mentioned, um, they're not saying that like Latino lives don't matter or yeah. other lives don't matter. You know, yeah. it's just that like we are predominantly anti-black racist in this country. So that's why that's that became their slogan, I think, from, you know, not an expert on that specifically, but just learning, knowing some of the history. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate all the insight you brought here today. Yeah, I know it's not a, it might not be a very popular one. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think this is like a different perspective from people that I usually bring on. Okay. And I dig it. Okay. I really do. <laughs> I really do. I hope your um, listeners dig it. I've, you know, I feel like it, it really depends too on who you're talking to. I think a lot of yeah. people think that, um, you know, that liberals or people that are very progressive have been brainwashed or think in a certain way because of... There's politics a, there's a lot of things but... you could say but <laughs> i am personally somebody who wants to soak it all all in yeah and i've had conservatives come on i've had liberals come on but they don't really talk about it um so i i really appreciate all the different point of views because but then it's like when they're sitting here in front of me i'm like dude i agree with everything you're saying <laughs> <laughs> and you're sitting in front of me I'm like i'm like i agree with everything you're saying yeah so it's Everybody makes good points and everybody has different things that they focus on. And yeah, I, I can appreciate all of it. And at the end of the day, we're all breaking the stigma on whatever the topic is or whoever the person is. And I think yeah. we did a lot of stigma breaking today. Yeah, I think so, too. All right, yeah. cool. Well, thank you so much, Alma. Thanks for, for having on me. The podcast. This is fun. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Mm -hmm.